is the good life. To follow Jesus Christ, it is the good life. And what I mean by that is not so much that we'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and maybe all those different things, but what I know is, is that we'll be a part of the Father's family carrying out what we're to do in this world, and there is nothing better than that. But in embracing this calling, one of the things he talked about is, is this, he, he lays out this idea of something that God had already been doing for time through this, through what he calls the law. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it from one standpoint that, man, his sacrifice was the once and forever sacrifice that our sins that we had committed against God, uh, they've, been, they've been kind of being taken care of through this animal sacrifice. But when Jesus Christ comes now, those of us that have come by faith to Jesus, let me just tell you this, we face our sin no more. And when he rose from the grave, it was a promise, a fulfillment of the law that we now would be a different kind of people. In fact, in Ezekiel 36 and and, in Jeremiah 31, the way that we would be is we would now have the Holy Spirit inside of us to be the people that God intends us to be, what humans have longed for forever. Like this whole thing, I was was listening to this thing on the new year, and this guy kept talking about, I just want to be my best self. Let me tell you, you will never be your best self apart from the Holy Spirit being in you. But the only way the Holy Spirit comes in you is if you first bend your knee to Jesus and receive what he accomplished on the cross and when he rose again from the tomb. So this is what he's saying. He's accomplished that. But in verse 18, he now says, but oh, there's more to come. In fact, we are going to fulfill the law. And the way that the law is going to be fulfilled through us, Paul talks about in Romans 13, is that the one who loves another, he's fulfilled the law. There's going to be a radical love that we're going to be carrying out. It's a love different than he talks about in Matthew 5.20, what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees, you're going to see this later when we get to chapter 6. They were just trying to look good in front of people. Jesus is like, we're not just trying to look good in front of people. No, no, no. The righteousness which Jesus had when he died, we too now can become righteous because of his work and not just the standing before God where we are considered holy and true in front of him, but now we can live righteously. And he's telling to them, your righteousness must succeed, not so much maybe in degree, but in kind. You're different. You're distinct. You're, you're other. And not only that, then check this out, and we'll get into more what this means. But he then says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No problem. Holy cow. Now, this is what I mean. On one level, I'm like, whew. But on another level, I can't wait for you to get to the end of this message. But what you're going to see is, is our God does the exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine in our lives. He transforms us into the people we're supposed to be. So not only though are we called to embrace something, but here's the other thing. We're to be a contrast group of people. We're to be different than the world. See, even in the passage we're going to look at today in verses 38, 39, 43, and 44, he was laying out a difference between the religious leaders of that time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And he was looking at them and saying, I know that they say this. That's what he's going to talk about. But his whole point was is they had lessened the law. They had in some ways relaxed it to make it more achievable because this is what humans always do. In order to accomplish the task, we lessen it. And the whole thing was is then they didn't need the Holy Spirit anymore to accomplish it. It was what I joked about when one of my kiddos I was playing a game with in order for him to win, or this kid, I can't, I gotta not say gender because then you might figure out who it is. But in order for this particular kid to be able to win, they changed the rules so they could beat me every time. 
This is what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. They were changing the law of God. They were relaxing it. And Jesus is like, no, we don't have to. Because my kingdom is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you don't, you don't, no, 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 you don't need to change this. I will come into you and make you different. You will be able to live in a way that God has intended you to live. And so that's what he's going to talk about. Don't you dare go there. You are different. You're a contrast community. But then here's the other thing, and this is why I love what Shannon talked about today. We are not supposed to just sit around and go, hey, we're cool. No, we are supposed to impact the world. We're to be God's people, and we're not just to sit around in chairs and go, oh, wasn't that a nice message? You know, well, no, I've heard better. You know, whatever it is that we sit around and do on a Sunday morning. No, we're supposed to be a part of something that changes the world. We're to be salt and light, he talks about in Matthew 5, 13 and 14. We're to be these people that restrain, that, 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 that come alongside the decay of the world and keep it from decaying. We're to be the light that shines into the darkness of hope and expectation and truth into the world. And so this is the thing we're going to do. And I want you to remember these three things because actually this is the rhythm of starting in verse thir- after verse 13 that Jesus is doing in this particular passage in chapter 5 is we're going to embrace our calling, we're going to create a contrast, and we're going to impact the world. That's what he says. This is what I'm calling you to inside of my kingdom. So let's look at where we're going today. Now, the passage starts in Matthew 5.38. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open to it. Let me just read it to you so we can kind of get an idea of where he's going and you can, you can kind of see what he's talking about in this one. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now what he's doing is he's quoting a section of the, of the law and that little idea of the, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that comes first of all from Exodus 21. That's the first time that we see it in which it was dealing with retaliation. And in fact, in your Bibles, you might have a little subheading that says retaliation on top. Now what's very important is that is that it was God's way amongst his people that he was going to prevent things from escalating. So if you think about it, you know, Rick Utley over there, if all of a sudden I went and I cut off his hand, and then Sherry, who's, man, she's a bad woman, she then came after me and cut off my arm, and then my wife, who you don't play with my wife, then she cuts off both Rick's arms, and it just would begin to escalate. This was God's way inside of his family, man. We don't, no, we don't escalate it. Whatever happened to this person is going to happen to this person, and then we're, 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 we're done. That's the point of it. Now, the whole thing is for Jesus, though, is he's going to call them to something greater. In fact, he's going to call them not to escalate it in the least. In fact, he's going to actually call them to take the worst of it and not in any way have an expectation in return. He wants us to now create a contrast community. You see this in Leviticus 24, 17 through 20. It's in that particular context. It's also in Deuteronomy 19. But the key is now when he talks about this idea, and here's what we're going to do to embrace our calling. Here's the first thing, is do not resist the one who is evil. Now that one's hard. Because when people do wrong things to me, man, I want to fight back. While we were on vacation, we're in the car, 
and one of my kiddos said something completely disrespectful to me. They, they were evil. <laughs> but isn't it, I don't know if you've ever done this as a parent, the next thing you find yourself doing is I went to their level. It was like, you know, they started making fun of me. And so and then I'm like, it just escalated on such a silly level inside of the family. We have that thing inside of us. Now, what's so important to this, though, when we talk about creating a contrast, this is what Jesus is going to talk about when it was, you've heard it said, but I have something else for you. I want you to see something about this, because this is important to actually what Shannon talked about earlier. What he's talking about is offenses done to who? Look at those words up there. What ones are highlighted? You. Notice how it doesn't say if anyone slaps them or if anyone would sue them or if anyone forces them or if anyone begs from them or if anyone would borrow from them. Let me just kind of piggyback off what Shannon was talking about earlier. Where there is evil in this world that's being done to others, especially the marginalized, those that are on the outsets of community, the church must step in and prevent evil. We have to. We have to step into those moments. So whether we step in like Forever Found does, or you guys know this around Cornerstone, we're huge into foster care where there is not something. The church is supposed to step into those moments as protection. But now he's not talking about the way we step in and help the marginalized or the least of these. He's talking about you. Now what he's going to do is, and this is what it means to impact the world, He's going to lay out for us four different things that I want you to see. Here's the first one. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, for the longest time, I'm like, man, who would slap a person? Like, we don't slap people. Like, I haven't gotten into, like, a slap fight lately, you know, since I was in, like, third grade. Like, who slaps? But if you've ever watched those old movies before, right, like those English movies where it's like, sir, I will spit in your direction, you know, and they slap them like this. It was an insult, okay? That's what it was. Now, people don't walk around with their gloves and toe, you know, slapping each other in the face. But his whole point is, if they insult you, off to the other cheek. In other words, just take it. Don't even demand that you get the right to hit back. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's taking this whole thing to a different place. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like in the way you would prevent maybe something within culture. Again, I still think the law is supposed to be there within culture. So in other words, if you rob from somebody, there should be restitution. If you kill somebody, there should be a consequence for that. So within culture, that's one thing. But the Pharisees were bringing it down even to the very things of life. So in other words, if a guy insulted me, I should then be able to insult them. And Jesus is like, uh-uh, that's not how we play here. The other one he brings up is this idea of anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now, the tunic was kind of your garment closest to your skin. You would, you would take out a loan, and, and your clothing was the most valuable thing that you had. You would, you would put your clothing down as a way to receive money, but if your lender now came and said, look, I want my money back, and you're not able to pay him, he could take your tunic. On one level, you'd be like, whoa, time out. That's my tunic. That's like, I mean, can you imagine if I got up here and preached today without my clothes on? It'd be a very negative reality for all of you. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't just stop there. Notice what he says. Offer to him also your what? Your cloak. 
The cloak was the most important thing that you had. In fact, when you look back in the Old Testament, it's considered what's called an inalienable right. You ever heard that word before? Inalienable right. It's something that I have a right to because it is the way in which I keep warm. I protect myself. Jesus says, if need be, even give up your inalienable rights. Whoa. Now, we as Americans hear that, we're like, I'm fine with like the Eighth Amendment. But you ain't taking away my First Amendment, especially my Second Amendment. An inalienable right, Jesus says, I want you to go so far as even to lay those down. He goes on, he talks about this diet. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. It was part of the law within the Roman culture at that time. You see this like with Simon the Cyrene. Remember when Jesus got crucified and he couldn't carry the cross anymore? So they grabbed Simon and Simon had to carry the cross the rest of the way because no soldier was going to do it. A soldier could conscript a person while he was walking along the path and force them to carry his pack up to a mile. And Jesus says, you know what? When you do that... Surprise the guy and carry it an extra mile. Now, what's so interesting, and I was thinking about it this week, is it's like Jesus, they came to him and they were asking him about taxes, right? We're about to have taxes in April, and I hate tax season. Amen. <laughs> Pay to Caesar what Caesar's owed and nothing more. But remember that first part of it? He says to them, he says this statement. He says, Pay unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and unto God what is what? God's. I was thinking about this. That first mile, that's Caesar's mile. That second mile, that's God's mile. There's something so powerful about what Jesus is talking about there. And then he says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who borrows from you. In other words, now he's talking about this idea in which how we handle our money. Now, I think what he's talking about, this happened to me in Chicago. I was, I was a brand new follower of Jesus. I went out for a conference at Moody, Moody Bible Institute, and a bunch of us were sitting outside Moody, and this guy walks up, because they always do walk up to Christians, because in some levels we are gullible. But um, he walks up to us, and he's like, hey, man, I need to catch you on a bus to wherever he needs to go. Can I get some just cash to do it? And we were at least smart enough to go, nah, we won't give you cash, but, you know, we'll pull together, and we'll, we'll, we'll put you on the bus. So we walk him down to the bus station. We get down there. We buy his ticket. He's going to go out that afternoon, you know, and we've been sharing Jesus with him. He kind of hugged it out, and we said goodbye to him. Next day, he was right outside Moody again. <laughs> oh, I was, I, was, I was angry. Oh, I wanted to go out, and I just wanted to absolutely grab my gloves and say, you dishonored me, sir, but I didn't. I think what he's talking about there is not that we're not supposed to give tough love. Paul even has this statement is, if you don't work, you don't what? Eat. But he's also saying, don't let your heart grow cold. See, from that moment, I had this thing where I'm I'm not going to help poor people no more. Forget the poor people. But that's a hard heart. And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about here. We're different. We're other were distinct. Now, Luke, he kind of talks about it a little bit, and this is what's so important about this. Why are we supposed to do it? We do it because of who our God is. When you get to verse 35, he talks about this idea of us being sons of the Most High. We're going to talk about that a little bit further, but he says, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil, and so therefore, 
you be merciful because why? He's merciful. We're showing off God. In 1 Peter, there's a, there's a way in which we'll get to in just a second, but we're called to something so much greater. But I think for a lot of people, whenever they see us be kind of move in this direction, they think, oh, we're just a doormat. That's what we as Christians are. We're just a bunch of doormats if we do that. If we just roll over and if we just somehow, you know, kind of give in in that kind of a way, we're just doormats. But here's the thing. Spurgeon, I don't know how many of you know him, he's a preacher of the 19th century. He preached a message around this. And he says, I know that you will feel like doormats, but actually historically, you're an anvil. You don't understand, he says, the world has sought to beat against the church for hundreds of years, but they don't understand that many a hammer has been shattered on the anvil that is the church because the church lives in a way that is so different and distinct. We follow in the pathway of Jesus. See, this is what Peter's talking about in First Peter. He says, for you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The church started off about the middle of the first century, and as it got going, there was no power. They just began to live and operate and look like Jesus. And the world began with the hammer to hit the anvil that is the church over and over and over again. And within 300 years, the greatest civilization in the world at that time was overtaken by Christianity, not because Christianity fought back, not because Christianity demanded inalienable rights, not because Christianity moaned and complained, not because Christianity was great at voting, not because Christianity did any of those things. They followed the footsteps of Jesus in walking his path, and our God crushes, it crushes governments, he crushes institutions, he crushes all things when the church is just the church. That's who we are. Our dad is the creator of the universe, and he says, this is what I want you to do. Now listen to me carefully. I believe in the law. I believe that there is laws within our country that need to be upheld in order to create the safety of culture. If you're someone right now being abused, there's laws against that. You're not supposed to stand in there and take it. That is breaking the law. I believe that we're supposed to within it, like I, anybody that knows how I deal with like issues of, of, of people that are poor and different things, I think within especially Southern California, it's a lot of chosen homelessness. And sometimes people have to face the consequences of their poor decisions. But the church must not get hard. We're to be this soft group of people that on the outside we might look like a doormat, but I promise you, as the world puts its anvil against those that look like Jesus, that look like doormats, they're not hitting a doormat. They're hitting the anvil, and they will be destroyed, not us, because our God won't allow it. And Jesus says, that's who you are. That's who I'm calling you to be. Now, notice something in this passage. Notice nothing ever changes. He doesn't say, and then people will quit hitting you and people will quit you know, slapping you on the face. People will quit doing this. He doesn't say that. He just says to him, just be who you are. 
And one of the things that I was reading just this week, and I want to just take some time to read it to you real fast. It's about a guy named Joseph who was in Africa. This was probably about 30, 40 years ago. But let me just read this to you. One day a man named Joseph was walking along a hot, dirty African road near Kenya in Tanzania. He met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to return to his own village and share the same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross, the suffering of Jesus, and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. So after rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. And once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred, determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth, and they flogged him for the third and probably the last time. He again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the, woman, the women who were beating them as they began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed, the ones that had so severely beat him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health, and the entire village came to know Christ. They beat against what they thought was a doormat, and they encountered an anvil. Jesus is calling us to a kingdom that is so different than what the world says is important. But he goes on. I want to show you this. Look at this next part of it. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Now, the verse that he's using that is calling us back to the law there is this one that says, you shall love your neighbor. Now, what's so interesting about that, it comes from Leviticus 19, and it's the way in which now Jesus is, or God was calling his people to engage in and through now the life of not only the community, but their love also of him. Now, here's what he talks about now in embracing our calling. What he's going to call them to, if you look down there, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Now, what's so crucial to this is not just that we stand there and we take the blows of the world and become the anvil, but as they give the blows to us, and here's what I mean, we represent God, is that as they deliver those blows, we look like Jesus. We look different. The words of Jesus that were so crazy is the ones where he says, Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Paul in Romans 5 says, yeah, you know what? God loved you while you were still his great, wonderful friends. No, he loved you while you were still his enemies. See, he's laying out something here where we don't just absorb it, but as we're absorbing these blows as the anvil of God, the church of God, we don't now look at them and disrespect them and not care for them. We love them. Is that easy? I don't even do it well in my marriage. I don't do it well on the freeway. Man, I've had so convicted that while I'm driving, I'll say things that, that like my kids are listening to me. You know, I'm like, oh, that was smart. That was great. Oh, why? Because I don't love those people. But it's not just loving them, and I think this is the key to it. He also then says to pray for them. Wow, what? But here's the thing I've found when I pray for my enemies. I actually start to love them. And it's not just praying for them that they'll stop. You know, like that'd be the one thing. Hey, Father, please help them to stop. Actually, that concept comes from the Old Testament. When you would pray for your enemy, it was actually pray for their welfare and flourishing. Pray for them instead, Father. Think about Daniel as he prayed for the different kingdoms that he was under. Pray for their flourishing. Pray that they might be great. Pray that you might bring prosperity and goodness to this world. What? Jesus says, yeah, I want you to be different. I want you to be a contrast community. I don't want you to long for wrong for them. I want you to do something different. See, the contrast here with what you've heard it said was is that they said, not only shall you love your neighbor, but what else? Hate your enemy. The Pharisees are like, yeah, you can totally hate your enemy. It's cool. You just got to love your neighbor. But then Jesus pointed out, well, who's your neighbor? See, there's three things that happen here. One is they omit this idea of yourself. Love your neighbor what? As yourself. The other thing then that they did was they forgot to define what neighbor is. Neighbor is anyone, Jesus shows us, that comes into our purview. But then they added this one, and also, don't don't worry about it, you can hate your enemy. Now, they probably stole that from what are called the imprecatory psalms within the book of Psalms, which they're totally maligning what those mean. But don't go there. The church is not supposed to find ways to avoid what Jesus has called us to. Instead, we're to go back to the throne of grace and say, okay, Jesus, you've called us to be distinct and different. You've given us a high calling. Now, what does it look like now to embrace it? Because I don't want to be just like the tax collectors. I don't want to just be like the Gentiles. I want to be different. I want to model to the world the goodness of who you are. I want to impact the world, to which Jesus says, this is how you impact the world. He says, the reason that you do what you do is so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why do we do it? Do we do it so that the world might change? Do we do it so that people might change? Do we do it for all these other reasons? No, he says, 
I'm the one that changes hearts. I'm the one that changes kingdoms. I'm the one that changes leaders. I'm the one that does that. I just want you to embrace who you're intended to be. Just be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Represent me well to the world. Look like Jesus. Treat them like I would from the standpoint that, look, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Treat them like I would so that they can see me. In Luke, you see this like in verse 34, if you lend to those from you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get to, to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Why do we do it? Not so that we can somehow now gain the glory of it, but listen, so that we might show them this is who our God is. That's why we're doing it. We have a purpose and a meaning and then in verse 48, he ends this way. You therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I want you to be just like your heavenly father. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm gonna nerd out for just a second. I know I'm coming to the end, but just go with me. We're gonna go Greek here a little bit. In this particular section, it says that must be perfect is a command, which is absolutely true. It's a command to be perfect. But it's in what's called the future middle indicative. And again, that I know it's like, okay, future middle indicative. I didn't even do well in English in high school. All that means is there's a future reality to this. It's not only a command to do this, but the idea is, is you will be made perfect. It's progress, not perfection. It's the way that we're moving it's the way in which now when you see Jesus, when, when he was one who came to earth, that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That by diving into these, you begin to learn what it looks like to do this. And in the midst of that, God begins to shape and mold you to look more and more and more and more like him. Listen to me. You can't change yourself. You can put yourself in the right position, but never forget this. God is the one who changes you. But he does not change those that are not willing to step into what he's called them to do. Transformation does not happen sitting in the pews. Transformation does not happen sitting back. Transformation happens as we enter in to impact the world as disciples of Jesus who make disciples. And in that moment, he shapes and molds us into the image of Jesus. And I love where this all started. Jesus said, follow me in what? I will make you. I love that. Just come follow me. Go where I go. Be with me. Know me. Love me. Be in and through my people. And I promise you, as you come with me as a disciple who makes disciples engaging with us in this world, how are you going to be made that way? I will make you. I will do it in you. I am the one that will change you. Remember the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, how might I be saved? And Jesus said, well, keep the commands. And he says, oh, I've, I've kept them all since I was a kiddo. And Jesus says, okay, sell everything you have, follow me. And it says the rich young man did what? He walked away. <laughs> now his apostles are sitting in the background going, Dude, what? 
they come up to Jesus like, who can do this? Jesus, like, we can't do it. And here's this statement in Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So what's the takeaway from today? Walk with Jesus. Passionately walk with Jesus. No, 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 Todd, what are we supposed to do? Walk with Jesus. Walk with other followers who are followers of Jesus. Go where he calls you to go. Engage in what he's called you to do. We'll talk more about that as we move along, as we kind of talk about what does it mean to be and make disciples of Jesus. But the number one thing of the church, the number one thing of the church, know, love, embrace Jesus. Get to know him. Fall passionately in love with him. Jesus said, you seek my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You just come after me with everything you are and watch out because I will transform you. So Cornerstone, in 2023, let us as a group of people know, love, follow, be enamored with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And I promise you, you get to know him, love him, and follow him more than you already do. You will not be the same person next year when we come back. And all God's people said, amen. amen.